0: Welcome to another episode of the Data Chaos Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wells. Today, we have the privilege of chatting with Ethan Aaron, the dynamic co-founder of Portable, a company that's trailblazing in the world of data infrastructure. From building a 12-person company to steering a thriving entity of over 620 no-code API connectors, Ethan's journey is one of resilience, innovation, and strategic vision. His unique take on the art of scaling a data company will challenge your existing notions and provide valuable insights into the intricate world of data infrastructure. We'll be navigating the complex maze of API documentation, exploring the pivotal role of data teams, and much more. Whether you're an entrepreneur, data enthusiast, or simply someone interested in the behind the scenes of business growth, this episode promises to enlighten and inspire. So grab your headphones, sit back, and get ready for an enlightening conversation with Ethan. All right, Ethan. Welcome to Data Chaos Podcast. I appreciate appreciate you joining me today for this conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Excited for the conversation.
0: So, Ethan, how did we get here?
1: The, conver- the conversation or where we are as a data ecosystem right now?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we can go either way with that. I mean, if we go to the data ecosystem, I think we're going to be on that for a while. Let's talk about Portable first and what brought you to start Portable. Because I think Correct me if I'm wrong, you're at the same stage as I'm at at Propel. So you guys are seed stage. You raised your seed of like 3.2, 3.1. Yep. Um, let's hear a little bit more about that. What brought you to Portable? What got you to 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 create
1: that company? Totally. So I've always wanted to start a company since I was young. And over time, I, I went to college and coming out of college, I was like, I don't know. I don't have a problem I want to solve. I don't, have, I don't know anything really, really well to actually start a company. So I was like, I'm gonna go do something kind of safe. So I went and worked at a big bank doing real estate investing entirely unrelated to data, entirely unrelated to portable. Uh, did that for a couple of years. Found it really interested, interesting, but found myself getting a lot more excited about the operational side and the analytical side of investing than the transacting side. So what I was effectively doing was we were buying and selling properties and I was trying to automate things. I was trying to build Excel spreadsheets and scripts to streamline the process. So did that for a couple of years. And then I was like, I, I think I need to go to a startup. So I actually joined a seed stage startup at the time in the data world. And I joined, it was a 12 person company in data. and I was going to do sales. I was like, I don't know anything about any of these things. Sounds amazing. So I went and I joined this company called Arbor. That's where I met my co-founder, Azeem. And we were 12 people like, and and it was amazing. Day one, the CEO was like, actually, we don't need you to do sales. Do you know SQL? Can you build dashboards for us? I was like, no, but I'll figure it out. Like, I, I know how Excel works. I can figure this out. So I... Read a bunch of books on SQL and was just banging my head against our read replica of a Postgres environment and some charts. And, and the whole point was not how do I do this efficiently. Like I, I, I tend to take there, in the data world. There's two mindsets. There's the how do you make perfect clean solution, and then there's the how do I create business value. So for me, what I was very focused on is I don't care what these SQL statements look like. Like thinking back, I thinking back to them, they were bad. They were very, very, very bad. But it didn't matter because the output was information that we could use to run the business. So was doing that. And then we sold to LiveRamp. Arbor sold to LiveRamp in 2016. And at LiveRamp, I did product for a year, stood up our own analytics function at LiveRamp. So there was no centralized data team at LiveRamp. And I was like, hey, like I, I'm going to write a job description for the head of business intelligence. And people said, okay. So I, I became the head of BI at LiveRamp, put in place our modern data stack, started collaborating with marketing, like we had a marketing analyst, a finance analyst, a product analyst, and then people that came in through different acquisitions. And I got everyone in the room, I was talking to the leadership team, being like, what are your what are the top pain points you think we could solve with data? What are the top pain points you could solve with data? And kind of spent my time working with the leadership team of a thousand person company on analytics. And then we started portable, and I worked in MA actually trying to acquire data companies. So did that at LiveRamp and then at the end of that started Portable. That was three and a half years ago. And the, the problem we saw in the market was there's a lot of people to help you get your common data sources into your data warehouse, your Salesforce's, your Postgres um, data sources, etc. But the minute you need a niche system, the minute you need a churn, a, a tool you use for churn reduction or a tool you use for maybe you're in a specific vertical and you have a specific CRM system, you can't find connectors for that anywhere. So we kind of sat down and we're like, how could is there a way to build connectors like these niche ones, orders of magnitude more efficiently than anyone else in the market? Because if so, we can build them all. And for two and a half years, that's that's what we focused on. It was just me and Azim in a room, virtual room, uh, trying to figure out how do you build and maintain no code API connectors, orders of magnitude more efficiently. Figured it out, got some early traction about a year ago or a year and a half ago, raised a seed round then. And then we're we're still, we've taken a different approach from most data companies. Like we're we're still a lean team. And a lot of it just comes down to, we believe that if you do things correctly, you can scale much, much faster. And we continue to focus on our operations and our, our streamline.
0: So you built, I was looking last on, on one side said 500 plus, but then I looked at your profile, it said 600
1: plus now. We are currently at about 620 and our goal is 800 by the end of the year. Uh, it changes, the year. it changes so quickly, and I have to update our website. Yeah. <laughs> I go and I update the variable every once in a while, but yeah, we're at, we're at about 620, and, and we're adding about 15 a week right now.
0: It's like you almost need that live, sort of like uh, in product analytic <laughs> that, that's a middle. counter that keeps good, yep. ticking up, like last built, last built, last ship. Yep. That'd be yep. pretty neat, so then everybody can come see that. So, yep. that's I mean, that's that's uh, that, that's that's an amazing journey. Did you raise? before you had customers or did you bootstrap this thing and then start raising once we, you had
1: customers? We bootstrapped and we actually we weren't taking serious like we weren't taking large salaries at all, mm-hmm. but we were effectively almost close to profitable at the time. So so we we had gotten, we wanted to make sure that we had paying customers. We act we had a fully self-service product at the time. We didn't I, I think the biggest thing that we were still working on at the time was our go to market. But we did have paying okay. customers, we did have revenue um, and that's and that and at that point we we're like okay, this is starting to work. How do we now scale up our integration? Like we have Klaus now who runs all of our integration development, maintenance support, um, hired people on the engineering front and go to market front. So, but yeah, we, we wanted to make sure that we had something that people were like, yes, I need this before, before raising.
0: Yeah. And in the retail space, I mean, it's slightly crowded. You're playing with the likes of FiveTran, tran HighTouch, a number of other ones. Are you, you're, it seems you're vastly differentiating yourself by having all of these niche connectors. Because I know when I last talked to Kashish at High Touch, yep. uh, he was on here. I think they had 200 plus. You know, you're you're an order of magnitude larger than that, and and still going. Yeah. Um, is that the biggest? Is that do you think that's the biggest differentiator, or is, is there a bunch of other secret sauce in there that
1: I, I would say? So the 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 most comparable company to us is going to be Five so high touch and FiveTran, they're they're kind of different ends of the ETL spectrum. Over time, there's there's an opportunity for them to converge. High touch just started saying they're going to collect data from websites. It's a pretty logical place for them to start pulling data from systems too. But if you think about both of them, they start at the top. They start at the Salesforce, Marketo, Postgres, etc. Um, whereas for us, like most of our clients today use FiveTran, and they also use Portable. They they're using FiveTran for their databases, they're using Fivetrain for their CRM system, maybe their ERP if they're on like Oracle or SAP. But they get to a point where they have a decision to make. It's either you wait in a backlog for someone to build your connector, you write custom code as a cloud function or a Python script or using something like Singer or Airbytes open source protocol, or you just don't get the data. Like Those are their options for the weird niche systems. So what we do is, it's yes, we have more connectors, but... It's the fact that, like, we, we have some things that overlap. We have Stripe, HubSpot, et cetera. And in those ones, it's just cost. Like, we compete on cost for, for big yeah. connectors that we happen to have built. But most of the conversations we're having, most of the use cases are just someone coming to us and saying, I just need this connector that no one else has. Can you build it? And we can build it, in some cases, as soon as the same day. And then they log in, they click, I want to connect this system to my data warehouse. If they like it, they swipe a credit card, and they can cancel it at any time so that that, where we differentiate is we just carved out our own part of the market where we say speed yeah it's speed and and what are the things that no one else wants to touch like there are a lot of connectors that we build that i have no doubt probably no one will ever use or maybe one person will use it but like at least no one else has to ever do that development work and we can do it really really efficiently so yeah
0: what in what in your approach that that y'all have taken has allowed you to, to sort of achieve this level of efficiency is it is it architecture infrastructure is it is it way that you you know developed the code sort of like walk me through that a little bit because i'm 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 curious on how you've gained this efficiency to turn something around in like less than a day
1: it i would say the highest level answer it, it's not an easy thing i can't point and be like this is the part of the integrate integration yeah. development process that is time-consuming like uh, there's the development part which you can do quickly or which we can do quickly and then there's the maintenance stuff which is an absolute nightmare so like azim's background he was when we were at arbor together he was building pipes and integrations and then at live ramp he was running the integrations division so 25 engineers petabyte scale integrations so there's a big architecture component of this there's also just the idea of like you you read enough api documentation and you constantly just ask yourself how do i remove 30 seconds from this process and you troubleshoot enough issues, and you say, how do I remove 30 seconds from this process? So it's like, it's a combination of technology, just deep expertise. Like, I, at this point, I have built more, probably integrations, let alone, like, definitely ELT integrations than anyone else in the world. Like, me personally. I've built over 400. Like, me as an individual, like, I've built more than most, than wow. almost every other ELT company just has. Klaus and our team is going to be second in the world. So it's like, you, you, it's a specialization component of, like, even just the idea of reading API documentation, like you could take a great engineer and be like, Hey, go look at this API. And they're going to miss like the weird header requirements or like the fact that pagination is set up in a certain way. Whereas like, we can look at things and be like, oh, like they say this is OAuth, but it's actually, like I saw, I was looking at something last night for someone. I was like, oh yeah, like the actual API calls here are pretty standard, but like they say it's OAuth auth code for, for authentication. It's not. They messed something up here. Like, they they aren't using the standards, which now means you can't interface with them in a standard way, which means how do you handle that edge case? That's what we've been doing for three and a half years. Going on four uh, is just finding that stuff, and instead of being like, okay, here's how we're going to script out a solution, actually continue to expand our platform that allows us to to solve these problems.
0: So with the 400... Plus, personally written. I wonder if there can be a Guinness Book of Records for the uh, the, yeah. the most, the most connectors. Like, yeah, right? Yeah. That could yeah. be. That could be some nice press. That'd be pretty cool. That would be fun. Yeah, it's it's always interesting because, like, you know, having having dealt with third party systems a ton throughout my entire career, yeah. you you know, API documentation is dicey at best. Some companies are absolutely phenomenal about it and, and do a great job. Others are kind of half assed. They throw it together as an afterthought, and you're sort of stuck to. I'm gonna have to probe this myself. I may have to get out. Uh, what was it like? You know, do some some network tracing, some sniffing, and actually look at Wireshark. I mean, I've gotten to that level before because yeah. it's like, oh no, it's supposed to be this way, and you're like, it sure as hell isn't. Yeah. And you start, you know, pulling back, pulling out all the debugging tools that you can to to figure out what the hell's going on.
1: Yeah, I've I, the worst I've ever seen. So there's a couple ones that are really bad. One, it was like a JavaScript application that it was no, it was like a Flash application. Their documentation was like a Flash application where you literally had to, the only way to actually like find a specific endpoint in the docs, every time you wanted to access them, you had to Google API documentation for this company, click into it, and then navigate through it down to whatever you wanted. And if I wanted to send you a link to the docs, I would effectively just have to send you to Google every time. So like that, there's that type of stuff. There's the other ones where it's like, you're building off of a PDF that someone sent you and then some like, indications of how pagination might work based on a combination of like what you can find in forums online as well as like what you're seeing in actual responses and what's working and what's not so it's, it's a combination of like when it, when everyone says oh can't you just like pull API docs and autom- automatically do what you do it's like in the scenario in which someone has a perfect API that meets all the specs in a sw- with a swagger spec defined and like best practices yes. That is just not the reality of 90% of APIs, especially the ones that actually are valuable to people. The ones that are actually valuable are the ones with the worst APIs in most scenarios.
0: It's like a war of grit and patience trying to get those things to work. And and
1: GraphQL is a whole whole other nightmare. GraphQL is awesome for front ends. Really bad if you want to actually expose data for people to do analytics. So stuff like that.
0: We actually uh, made the choice and went full GraphQL. But our GraphQL... Our public API is 100 GraphQL. Our yep. SDL is fully published and, yep. and public. Yep. Um, I will send you a link, and we'll, we'll. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yep. but we made the choice because we found our our GraphQL API specifically designed to for front end engineers to interact yep. with it. So if, and so it's more tailored for them to get
1: value out of it than back end. If so, you thought about your API and why and who it is you're serving. Yes, most people that create APIs it comes in because someone's, like, salespeople are saying, people are asking us for an API, and they're, someone probably is. And then it gets kicked over to a product backlog. It's like, add an API for our product. And then it goes to the engineers, and the engineers are like, cool. Like, I'm going to build a GraphQL API because that's the most cutting-edge thing that I can do. And, like, we use GraphQL on our own front-end, not realizing that the person they are trying to serve is not a front-end developer. Like, the, the clients okay. that are talking to sales actually just want all of the data... About the objects and relationships inside their system, exposed in a way for them to pipe it into Snowflake or pipe it into BigQuery, and GraphQ, like REST APIs with standard pagination mechanisms are just a lot easier for most people to interface with than GraphQL, which yep. typically return like you get two hundred respond two hundred response codes regardless of what happens, and trying trying to, yeah. trying to it throws you off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's one of those things where it's feasible. But yeah, thinking through who it is that you're actually building your API for is always absolutely critical.
0: Yeah, for us at Propel, the the API is the product. Mm -hmm. And so before we'd started building up our infrastructure, doing anything else like that, is we spent an exorbitant amount of time thinking through that API and how that API is going to be consumed and who it's who the audience is. And specifically, that audience is going to be those front-end developers, those React developers, Next.js people writing in TypeScript, yeah. that typically aren't dealing with data, yeah. but they need the data, and so that was a big that was a a big focus for us coming out of Twilio, where everything was REST and that was communication APIs, but now they're all geared towards data and data analytics. Yeah. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about the overall ecosystem. And so, you are a, a prolific producer of points of view and commentary on LinkedIn, which I love. I think it's fantastic. I'm assuming that's a large part of your go-to-market strategy, but also just a large part of your ethos and and who you are in, in the way that I've read it. Yeah. And you've got a lot to say specifically around, let's say, modern data stack or the notion thereof or not. Yeah. And then I think one of the most recent ones that I liked was the disconnect between data engineers and the business itself. So we've got a lot of things we can unpack there. Where do we want to start? Do you want to start in sort of the underlying infrastructure and, and why that's so broken or why that lends itself to not, uh, not fulfilling some of the promises?
1: I think there's, there's like some context I always like, like to give on this, which is over the last five years, every company was succeeding. Every company was raising money. Every company was growing. And data and having a modern data stack was like the hot trend. It's like AI today. So budgets were going into it and teams were growing and then you'd hire the person. The person would look around and be like, I want to manage people in addition to writing queries. And it's like, maybe I don't want to write the queries. I just want to manage people and be a leader of a bigger team. So like what happened over the last probably five years is there was indications that modern data architecture were going to be valuable. And then it became more of a just trend of let's let's hire these people. Let's grow these teams. Let's put in place the most cutting edge things that we hear about in the sl- in the presentations and the slides, but very few of those actually were ever held accountable for what is the value that you've generated. I actually I talked to a lot of people, and, and and this the sad part is like now a lot of the, like a lot of teams right now are being downsized, and in a lot of those scenarios, a lot of it comes down to can you explain. Like, what is the point of your data team? Like, why why, why do you need 10 people yeah. doing this? Like, what, what is the value that you can point to to justify this? Nine of the people on that team say it is not my problem, it is the head of data's problem. Like, they were the one that was supposed to have the answer. And the head of data is the one sitting there being like, I just really wanted to put in place the technology and I really wanted to grow my team so I could say I was the head of data. Like, and, and now they're trying to figure out what is, how, how do you justify the value? And like, if you're a one person data team you could probably f- easily find a way to add enough value to justify your job. If you're a 10 person data, 20 person data team, and let's just assume you're talking 200 grand all in between common benefits and tech for people. Like you're talking millions of dollars in cost every year. If you're working at a series A company, series B company, millions of dollars in cost needs to have like 10 million plus top line benefit to the company to be justified. It's gonna be really tough. So I think that's that's the reality of where we've gotten to. And I think the people just wanted to put in place the team because they wanted to have the titles. They wanted, they wanted the data scientists, they wanted the analytics. Not the resume. Yeah. It was
0: the, it was it was a resume.
1: And and I think now what like one of my favorite questions asked is one, why does your data team exist? Like why should like why should your CEO keep funding this? It's a very real question that you should have a very good answer to. And the second one is of all the stuff in your backlog. How much of it should, can be, and should just be done in a spreadsheet? Because there's probably 90% of it that you think you need to build an automated pipeline with QA and all this other stuff, when in reality, it's going to be used once, maybe twice. And a manual person taking the data out of three systems, putting it into a spreadsheet, putting it into a PowerPoint presentation or a meeting and presenting it, it's going to get thrown out anyway, do it in a spreadsheet. So, like those two questions, if you can answer those, then it becomes a question of like, okay, like find the very few things that do need to be automated and then figure out the minimum viable tech stack and team to actually solve them with a high ROI. But most, most people are unraveling the last five years right now. They're not, they're, they're, they don't have the time or resources right now to figure out how do you do the next phase. So I think most companies right now are in this downsizing and unraveling phase. And I think it's going to leave a lot of scar tissue in inside of Companies inside of the data teams and inside of the leadership teams around this was this just a really bad idea for us? And yeah,
0: hundred percent. Let's before we go on, let's take a step back though. Like let's define over the last five years what has been maybe that ideal modern data stack is, is what they're of what they're trying to produce like from an infrastructure standpoint what have you seen I know what a lot of things that I've yeah. seen I know that I've seen mostly empty promises yeah. or people have not achieved it at all yeah but what are what are you seeing or what what let's let's define it first on what it's supposed to be and then kind of what you're
1: running into so funny enough the first I like started on LinkedIn two years ago maybe a year and a half ago, actually. Um, So like up until a year and a half ago, I had posted nothing. I was never, I would never consider myself a content creator. I'm guilty. Guilty with you. Uh, (laughs) Right there too. And and I, initially I was posting garbage. It was like, what is ETL? What is ELT? Stuff that people can read and be like, okay, like, but no one actually wanted to have the conversation. My first post that I looked at was like, whoa, like people actually really engaged with this was a post saying, I'm trying to figure out how many customers we have here's what I'm thinking for my modern data stack. And it was ELT, data collection, data transformation, data warehouse, data quality, data activation or reverse ETL, like a visualization tool, a notebook tool. I'm trying to think what else, like tracking plan tool, like all these tools. And I thought it was a joke. Like I posted this being like, if I want to know how many customers I have, it's probably just like in a CRM system or in a list somewhere. Like you don't need any of this stuff. But instead, what people said, and I think it was very indicative of the time, a year and a half ago, two years ago, was everyone said, wow, that's like the perfect modern data stack. What tool did you use for this? What tool did you use for that? And I, it got a lot of engagement. I was like, oh, like, if you actually start conversations at the edge of like humor, like, like reality, and like having an actual perspective, it's like, most people don't need any of those tools. They just need a spreadsheet to figure out how many customers they have, if that. But I think what most, the data stack depends is is, is the answer. I think if you think about what people are trying to do with data in terms of how do you create value, it's one of three buckets. Analytics, which is dashboards for your leadership team to make better decisions. Automation, which is effectively take manual tasks and get rid of them so that you can save your company 10 hours a week, 100 hours a week, etc. Or... Products, building actual products that you can sell and make revenue from or risk mitigation, but that's not like it's, it's important to, to mention, but it's, it's just not those three are the ones that you're going to point to and say, I create value by dashboards, I create value by automated workflows, or I create revenue. Depending on the one you're trying to accomplish, you need different tools. Like in an analytics tech stack, you really just need either an ELT tool or a data collection tool. Data collection, when I say that, it's like a snowplow analytics, something to pull data or rudder stack to pull data from your website if you happen to be a web or mobile heavy company. ELT tools are typically more valuable if you have a lot of system, like third-party systems, Uh, like you're an e-commerce shop with a returns tool, inventory tool, et cetera. A data warehouse to put the data and a visualization tool. That's like your MVP actual data stack. Like most people, like even today, we don't replicate our database into a data warehouse. I just query it. Like I query a replica of a Postgres database directly from our visualization tool because I don't need to join the data to anything else and I don't want to deal with it. Like, well, um, yeah. so, but like that's... Yeah, you can
0: solve your use case with that. Yeah, yeah,
1: like, so so that's the analytics tech stack, like MVP tech stack. Automation, it's interesting because the MVP tech stack, when it comes to automating workflows, actually, for most companies, doesn't involve a data warehouse. You just use something like Workato, Trade.io, Zapier, and if they meet your needs, you just copy and paste it. Like they'll just route the data, SnapLogic, whatever. If you're using a data stack to do this and you want synergies with the analytics stuff, your tech stack's more likely to be some ingestion. You have either ELT or data collection, data warehouse, and reverse ETL or activation, where you're typing data back out. In the data product world, and sometimes in analytics and sometimes in automation, things become really, really important that, and they can't go wrong. So like... The, the big problem there is like you're selling stuff to customers. So, so, or if your analytics are really valuable, it needs to work. That's when things like data governance really matter. That's when things like embedded visualization or APIs for people to build products on top of really matter because like your consumer is different. Like the, the, the person using data product, like it depends on a lot of people have used the word data product in like 20 different use case, twenty different ways. When I think about it, it's like building a product for a person to pay for it.
0: In that world, we call it, we tend to call it customer facing analytics or data applications, depending on the nature of it, right? But that's essentially the persona you're describing right there is all of that data that you're collecting, that's coming in, that you're transforming, that you're spending time upon, you're building either a product that you're charging for. Or you're building a product that is empowering your customers with that data, so they can continue to understand and grow trust on your platform okay. and build on your platform. Yeah, and, and yeah, but it's but at the end at the end of the day, it's an external consumer of your data yep. that is going to have a much higher standard and is going to have a much higher demand for reliability, correctness, yeah. and uh, I would say low latency.
1: Yeah, and at scale, like at really really big scale, the three converge. In the sense of like, you can build one data stack that powers all three of these, where you're like, you're ingesting everything, it's all very well organized, you're transforming it, you have a really big team. So maybe at that point, you consider a transformation tool to help you organize your queries and and your modeling. Then you've got like permissions layer on top of all that. Then you've got your visualization capabilities on top, you've got some reverse CTL stuff on top, and you've got products that are built on top. In most scenarios, teams should pick one of the three and be like, this is our focus most people for the last 3 for the last 5 years have been building the tech stack that could power all three of these without being able to point to any value that they've created from any of the three use cases so like that's the problem and yeah. and when you yeah. do that it also means now you have like a lot of contracts with a lot of vendors and you have spend then you have headcount trying to stitch them all together and troubleshoot across a bunch of stuff and it's just a, it's a nightmare to unravel like in most scenarios people my recommendation for companies would be shut it all down and start out yeah pick the top 10 Sorry. metrics for your business top 10 dashboards that actually impact the business or pick the one product that's driving revenue or the two workflows that have to be automated and find the minimum viable way to solve that problem and delete everything else just get rid of it. get rid of it.
0: take the t- yeah take take it's like throw your resume away nobody cares like forget it yeah it's not important anymore provide value take a kiss approach get rid of all of those things identify those before you do anything it's like it's the same way when we engage with customers, we the first thing we talk about is let's start at the beginning or start at start at the end product. What is it you're giving yeah. to your customer? How are they going to consume this data? Yeah. Design all of that and then work your way backwards to say, what is the MVP, the minimal viable product I need or infrastructure in order to deliver that? And like you said, it may just be a spreadsheet.
1: Yeah.
0: I talked to <laughs> it may be a simple query off your read replica and a spreadsheet.
1: Yeah. No, I, I was talking to someone recently and they were trying to move data from a database into their data warehouse. And it went from being cheap to being extremely expensive in like a week. Yeah. And they were like, please help me. I was like, okay, like, there's a lot of different ways to get your data from your database into a data warehouse. Like, do you need all the data? It's like, or like, what, what here is expensive? And it was like, oh, this one table is really expensive. Do you need it? No, like they weren't, they weren't actually using that table. And then they were, like, and I was like, you got a lot of options here. Like, what are you doing with this? Why do you actually need all this data in your data warehouse? And they, they needed it there because they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with it. They, they didn't, they hadn't yet identified. So I like, again, it's one of those scenarios. But they wrote the check. They'd already been they writing the check, the check and paying and for it. really <laughs> expensive. And I was like, but why? Yeah. what, do you, what do you, what is, what, do, what are you spending this money on and this time on? And it really was going towards trying to figure out if there was value in the, that data, which there's probably some way to create value from it. But I would go start by talking to business stakeholders first. It's like, what? Do you, what do we need solutions to? And only then start pulling data in. The other thing there was like, I was like, could you just query a read replica of this? Like just to just to yeah. POC what's valuable. Like, sure, there, there's probably some insightful thing you can find in your data. But like, and then justify replicating it. But it's like, they already have replicas set up. Like all they need to do is connect them to their data warehouse and they could start that same day. And it costs nothing. The replica already existed. Like there, there was there was a zero dollar bill and they can use that to find the use cases and if those use cases get complex enough and you have to join the data with other stuff or there's other reasons why you need a data warehouse then you consider it like I don't even think they needed the data warehouse I I, I I think to start they just needed it they need to identify the use case to justify all of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I f- I feel like if you're not identifying the use case and you're not identifying the value, and you're you're building strictly because hey, these things are cool and this is what, this is what the modern data stack tells me I should be doing, and I should follow these really smart people on LinkedIn, you're going to get to the place which you're like you, which you're describing today, where people are are tightening the 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 spend, they're tightening the budget, and they're looking at all this stuff and asking questions, what value am I getting? And if you can just turn around and almost no cost because you've already got the read replicas and provide that initial insight because maybe your data is not huge you don't have a ton of transactions you haven't hit scale yet you know we have a saying everything works at small scale it's just when it gets to a billion and and bigger things start to get a little strange and you know you've got to you've got to make some changes there but at a small scale if i'm just starting off as like a seed stage company i don't and i'm just getting going why would you turn around and say well i'm gonna go get snowflake i'm gonna have these pipes i'm gonna invest in a you know in, in these these big pipelines this huge etl like it's it's almost nonsensical and, and really what it is is you're just increasing the burn rate for no value for no customer yeah. value especially and, it, and
1: it's funny though because seed stage companies 100 like they you you probably just don't even need a data warehouse unless you're talking serious volumes of data like or and if you do you yeah. can stay on a free tier pretty easily but even when i was at LiveRank, like if you if i went to the leadership team and i said like what are the biggest problems that matter to you it wasn't like they move massive like petabyte scale data through their pipes but the problems that they have as a company, the things they were trying to get answers to and solve, were mostly metadata questions. So, like you are you're not actually you don't actually care about the petabyte scale data. All you care about is like how do I join my Salesforce customers, my product usage data, and it's like again, like you don't need crazy infrastructure to do it. You just need to sit there and think and and identify the high value thing, and then come up with the answer to it. Whereas most people have gotten or. If, for a while, have been going the other direction of I need these tools, and then I'm going to try try and find a use case for them afterwards.
0: So if you go back and you say we you know, you talked about the the three things that data teams try to solve, yep. right? And I would say maybe five years ago, four years ago, that took a lot of cobbling things together and and sort of, hey, I've got to use this third party, maybe this piece of open source. I'm using some things over here, and it's a lot of it's a lot of maintenance, it's a lot of upkeep, it's a lot of infrastructure that you have to run. Yep. It seems to me now that we've evolved to a place that you could probably hit all three of those with maybe a subset of, of maybe one to three tools. Yep. And you could kind of knock it out of the park, maybe even less, depending on what you're, what you're trying to do. Yep. Are you seeing that evolution? Are you seeing people starting to wake up to that a little bit more and dial things back and take the route of simplicity and saying, eh, this is just crazy. What are we doing all this for? Why do I need to go create this massive data lake when I can just, only two tables are important to me. Like, let's just pare this down. Are you starting to see that in the in the customer base, or more people talking about that? Are they still so, hitting the resumes?
1: I would I would say there's two types of data teams out there. There's probably more, but like there's there's two general types of data teams I've seen. One is the one that we're already only pulling the two tables and being ruthless about. Here's how this creates value. The other ones were they put in place all this technology. the The thing that becomes scary for most data teams is they put in place like 10 tools, and those 10 tools are powering. 100 to 1,000 dashboards. I don't know what you do with that many dashboards, but it's powering a lot of dashboards. It's automating a few workflows, some email sends, some stuff going back into a CRM system. And it's probably powering da- like something for customers, either some weird roundabout metric going back into a system or something else. And I think what people are facing today is they have these 10 tools and, you, and, and the problem for them is they're already stitched into these however many dashboards workflows and products so now they're looking at it as i need to go upset a lot of people by shutting all this stuff down like i can't get rid of tool number six because tool number six is part of these pipelines and i don't even know where it's going but like i know my my dashboard user is going to be upset or i know my workflow person is going to be upset or i know my customer is going to be upset and i think a lot of teams now are looking at it being like but with like we have a big team who each person only knows a subset of what's going on here. We have all this technology, which is power, which is stitched into all these external interfaces for the team. And it's very difficult for people in the data world to deprecate stuff. And it, to a certain extent, it's, especially if you haven't done it before, like it is a scenario where consultants can help or where changes can help is like someone coming in and being like, I'm sorry, like my job is shut all this stuff down. And I don't like any dashboard beyond number five. We're just going to delete it. And I'm going to upset a lot of people because of this. You probably won't because most people probably aren't actually using those dashboards. But someone has to be willing to go in there, either an existing person on that data team or someone coming from the outside and say, I know that we own, five of these create most of the value, if not all the value. I, we're just going to draw a hard line and delete everything else. And same thing on the workflow, same thing on the products. The problem now is there's a thousand use cases for these data stacks, and everyone wants to unravel them one use case at a time before they realize they could replace it with one tool. You just need a you need to rip the band-aid. You have to just deprecate everything that's not absolutely mission critical. And then you'll get down to a list of five things that you can actually solve with one to five tools, if that. But the the reason why people aren't yet doing that is They're in this like wait, not waiting mode. They're in this like mode where they're scared to upset everyone because they don't know which use case is valuable. They don't know which dashboard is valuable. They don't know which ones are going to justify the investment in the data team. So they just keep all the lights on because they view keeping all the lights on as the best, as creating the most value. When in reality, turning off 95% of the lights is going to show that the data team can create more value because it's cheaper and you can really focus on the things that really matter. So I I think most teams right now should be using many fewer tools, but they're in this weird mode of like our team was downsized and now I'm trying to figure out how do we both show value and not piss everyone off, but do it in a delicate way. So I I think most teams right now are are not facing technical challenges. They're facing internal politics challenges. And I think just making the call of like, I'm gonna rip the band-aid and clean all this stuff up like if you if you put it in place clean it up yeah. and if you didn't like it's, it was someone else's fault clean it up um but if you don't just turn it you're off you're gonna be it. maintaining like way too much stuff that you can't justify
0: no i think that that makes a lot of sense especially if budgetary constraints are becoming more the norm and downsizing becoming north more the norm right now you're, you're sort of stuck with less teammates to go run all this crap that was stood up yeah during during uh, the fatter years and you know you've gotta you've gotta deliver value at the end of the day. That's the most important thing. Yeah. So something I saw in a, a previous life was the difficulty of managing sort of the the needs of a product engineering team. And I'll define a product engineering team as as like from a SaaS standpoint is the team that is delivering that product that sits in the hands of the customers. Yeah. Um, and that could be say the the front end, could be the console, whatever else like that, but that team And then you've got your data engineering team. And the product engineering team typically has customers coming to them saying, hey, uh, I I need data. I need to see what's happening. Product engineering team, you know, kind of lobs a a JIRA ticket over the wall to the engineering team saying, hey, I need access to all of this stuff. They're going, what for? I don't understand. What are the use cases? Fill out this Confluence page, everything else like that. And it becomes this nightmare, right? The contract is completely broken. There's no interface for anything like that. What has your experience been where teams have gotten it right? Have you seen that where a team as these two teams have been able to figure out how to cohesively exist and solve the customer problems where this team's delivering value from a data perspective, they're delivering value from a product perspective?
1: It depends on the use case. So in mo- like someone just came to me actually, and they, they asked, they were like, hey, I want to start exposing metrics to my customers. And I want to build a data team to do this. And I said, there are three use cases for data, internal dashboards, automation, and customers. Are you telling me the only use case for this data team is customers? They said yes. Like, over time, they believe it can do other stuff, but for now, yes. In that scenario, like, it, it all depends. The, the answer is it depends on your organizational structure, your priorities, how many different things are being powered out of a data team or a data tech sector. But al- I, I always think about it as, what is the right decision then? And, and then over time, you can always, always car- carve this stuff out. In that scenario, I, went to him, I was like, if you create a separate data team that the separate data team is going to have to go get front end engineering talent from the product engineering team. And they're going to wait in the backlog. And now your front end team is going to wait in the backlog for the data team to do anything. You're effectively breaking your company apart in two teams that have like quasi competing priorities and are not aligned. Like if the only use case here is customer product development, hire another full stack developer and just have them own like building this into the product. And in that case, I think most people view most data people, most analytics people, the people that focus on dashboards view the data warehouse as the perfect place to run compute and to do all transformation within the company. When you get into product development, like you have really, really smart engineers that can actually find other types of databases and file and compute resources and file store, whatever, that are probably cleaner solutions that can be run for much cheaper and you just have to be a developer for them to work. So it's one of those things where data teams are a phenomenal place to iterate and come up with ideas when it comes to third, like external product development. And they're great for owning internal analytics. I do not personally believe most data teams should be dealing with automation. (laughs) I think automation, you should just be using an iPass tool directly. Like there's Fewer synergies between your data warehouse and automating an operational task. And it's not worth the overhead. It's my high level. Like there There might be a couple workflows, but most of them should just be going through an iPass tool or a CDP. But between analytics and customer-facing products, I think iterating quickly with the data team, exposing it as a data product is really important early on. As data volumes scale, it should just be owned by the product development team. The the Because... At scale, things get a lot more costly and having engineers make engineer, if the engineering team says the data warehouse is the best place for us to run this compute and this is the best way to do it, amazing. Like it can still live alongside of your other stuff, but I kind of think about it as like one of them is going to create outsized value for the business. It's either analytics, automation, or customer, like ignore the other two, like pick one. And if it's the customer facing stuff, like pick that. If you're a really small company, yeah, you have to try them all. But that, I, I think most people try and say, we need to do all this out of the same place because it's data, when in reality, data doesn't matter. It's the use case. What is the use case that you're trying to accomplish? And how do you keep everyone aligned on actually solving that problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you could run it all out of the same place efficiently and cost effectively, then sure, who wouldn't want to probably do that? But I find most of the time, you're trading off one for the other, right? And... If you say, I'm going to throw everything in Snowflake because Snowflake can do everything and it's meant to do everything. Well, if you're going to start serving that out to your customers and you want to deal with concurrency, you want to deal with high number of low latency requests, well, you better write a very large check to keep that yeah. compute going for a very yeah. long time. And that's not necessarily going to solve it because you still may not hit the latency requirements. And and it's it's you start to get into these discussions now where it like it's like, oh, this is the hammer that I yeah. know. And this is the only thing that I know. I don't know anything else. I'm going to throw embedded into this. I'm going to take an embedded looker dashboard. I'm going to take all these different things when the reality of it is the product engineering team doesn't know what the hell an embedded dashboard is. They don't know about a number of these other things. They know they have a customer problem to solve and you give it to a full stack engineer, they're going to figure out the most efficient way, easiest way to manage that. And most likely it may not be a warehouse um, unless there's some sort of very simple interface to allow them to interact with that data. And that data is is you know the 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 kind of the, the right source of truth and the only it's, source
1: of it's truth. It's really int- like. I've, I go off and on through phases of like being a data person, being a product manager. Even today, I'm like somewhere in between like I'm a CEO, I'm a data person, and I'm a product person, but, and marketing too, the, the whole LinkedIn stuff. But it's like, pro, like the, the, the definition of being a product manager, or like one of the, the things that you cannot get wrong as a product manager, you have to get it right, is do not tell engineers how to solve the problem. Like don't tell them, use this tool to solve the problem. Implementation details are not your job. Your job is identify the highest value problems to solve and generally what a solution needs to look like. And then you go to engineers and you say, I do not care how this gets done. I'm not going to tell you to use Postgres versus MySQL versus anything else. I just need a solution that meets these needs. I think what's happened in the data engineering realm and this data world and analytics realm is because of how marketing is working in this world and because a lot of people are being trained through marketing materials and not mentors, they're trying to set, they're, they're, they're starting with the implementation detail. They're saying, oh, my data warehouse can be used both for this and this. Let's do that. And then let's go find the use cases. When in reality, it's like, use cases is the only thing that matters. If you can point to the three yeah. use cases your company has, you have a bunch of options in terms of tooling. Like most most people's use case for what they use their data warehouse for could probably be done out of a read replica or just out of Postgres. Like technically, as an implementation detail, they don't need a data warehouse. The fact that they're putting that in place first and then trying to identify things is just everything being done backwards. So like, I, I think the, to your point about what are the usage needs of your external facing product is where you need to start the conversation. And then you pick a really, really smart person, whether it's a software developer or a data engineer, whoever it is that owns solving the problem with technology and you just tell them it's up to you. Like, and maybe it's one person, maybe it's a team. If it's a team, the team needs to think about the, all of the pieces of the puzzle, of all the problems they're trying to solve. But again, it's that's an implementation detail. It doesn't matter. Like, it, it doesn't matter to anyone except that team how it gets done. And I think right now everyone's picking tools on behalf of their teams, which is entirely backwards.
0: Yeah, for us, customer experience drives everything. Uh, customer experience, which leads to customer value, et cetera, is, is what drives everything. And then everything else gets decided yep. from there and kind of rolls out from there. Let's let's switch gears entirely. You said you only started really posting on LinkedIn about a year yeah. and a half ago. Is that yeah. about right? And you're determined and prolific. Let's say uh, to to put it to put it mildly. What was the impetus for that? Was this part of your your GTM? Was this part of the strategy in order to reach distribution? I would. Um, so so you know, looking forward back forward on
1: forward. it, yes, it is extremely important. It for for me the way I think about LinkedIn is. It's just a way for me to meet a bunch of people and have conversations with a bunch of people that leads to happy hours in New York that we do. It leads to virtual conferences. It leads to people hearing about us and trying the product, but it's really just a place for me. It's like going to a conference and talking to people every, but like every day that that's how I view LinkedIn and me spending time doing that is very good for us when it comes to brand awareness and and just meeting people in the day to So yes, it's a very important pillar of our go-to-market strategy how did we actually get here? Like, how did I end up realizing I need to post on LinkedIn? It wasn't on purpose. It was just like most founders. We were both, partners. I was, I came from product, then data, then M&A, never doing true, mar- like never doing marketing ever. And I had some sales experience, but not, it was never my specialty. And Azim's an engineer. And we looked at the problem we were trying to solve as a technical problem. It was like, how do you build all these integrations that no one else has? We did that for two years. We came up with an amazing solution. And one day we were like, what if we, like, what if we just gave this away? What if we gave away ELT and then we sold people something else? And we were like, oh, let's, like, try. Let's try it. I posted in some Slack channels. uh, And I looked around. I was like, how am I supposed to tell people in the world about an idea? Like, whether it's giving ELT away for free, some new product, some new feature. It was, like, the way I would describe it is it, like, felt like I was screaming, but, like, nothing was coming out of my mouth. Like, no, no one... You're yeah. Like, the no one, like <laughs> I, I had no platform to tell anyone about anything we were doing with any sort of distribution. So it became, right. Right. looking back on it, anyone started a company at all, like I would focus on audience building and creating a place to speak from yeah. before building anything in any, any industry. Cause if you, even if you build the perfect product, if you don't have a way of distributing it, useless. But if you, if you have an audience and you can distribute stuff like you could always just distribute other people's products and then you can find what works. It's like kind of like what Amazon has done in their own way where it's like, they're distributing other people's stuff because they have the eyeballs and then they are delivering their own products. But yeah, LinkedIn to me was by accident. I was like, I don't know why I decided I would start posting stuff on LinkedIn, but I was like, Oh, there's people here. Like it seems free. Let's do it. And then for about nine months I was posting on a regular basis both me and Azim were looking at it as something about this feels like it's a good idea, but we can't point to it. Like there was nothing measurable. Like I had 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 followers. People were listening and engaging with my content. But like, I couldn't point to the customers. I couldn't point to what this was actually going to do for our business. I had no idea. And then about nine months into posting on LinkedIn, I gotten a good amount of followers. And one day, like I was effectively like, ready to give up on LinkedIn. Cause I was like, it's fun. I'm meeting a lot of people. This is great for the business somehow, but like, I can't point to it. So like, what's the ROI of this? And I was like, if that's the case, why not just try and market portable for a month? And all I, like I I stopped, it wasn't super engaging content. It wasn't like, Oh, let's talk about this new thing. But I was just like, Hey, this is what portable does. Like try it. Hey, this is what, and it drove a lot of adoption of our product. And I was like, Whoa, like, I can now actually go back and say, hey, what about this? Hey, like, and I have an audience of people that will give me real feedback or actually try our product. And that's when I realized, like, whoa, this is actually quite valuable. Um, for the business. But there was a good nine months where it was something about it felt right, but I couldn't explain it. But now
0: But you'd built up like but I think you said something super important. And hopefully that's the 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 main takeaway is you'd built up this audience prior before, like I'm sure you mentioned portable here and there and everything else like that, but You'd built up this audience before all of that, focused on thought leadership, focused on point of view, focused on data in a more, sounds like a more general sense. And so now you've gained these followers and they're looking for you. They're like, okay, what's Ethan going to write this time? Like, okay, what's Ethan? all of a sudden it's like, Ethan starts talking about the, you know, 289th niche, uh, you know, connector you've done now for portable. Why is that important? And now you've got this massive amount of people that are like, Hey, shit i actually you, you know maybe one in the haystack like if it's super niche it's like one person's like yep. hey i use that actually <laughs> i need that and then now you've got now you've converted them so now you've got the conversions but you did all the the kind of like what almost felt like fruitless hard work up yeah. front building that like you said building the audience and and that thought leadership yeah and it's it's like the do you think no go ahead no so ahead, so sorry. to me it's no i was i was going to say that it's it's like i know that i'm looking at it like i don't have We're trying to do the same thing, right? You have to, you don't have marketing. You don't, you're not born with the platform. When I exited Twilio, I didn't come out of there with a platform. Like sure, my LinkedIn showed me what I've, shows people what I've done, but I didn't post for shit during that time. And I probably should have because of the size of Twilio and everything else like that. But I had no idea because we're so far removed on the engineering side from marketing, from growth marketing, from all of those things. Nobody ever asked us to do anything. And then you come out and you're silent. People like, Hey, I see you've left but then I'm not posting, I'm not doing anything. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, we don't have an audience. How am I going to get distribution? How many, I need a platform. Okay, well, what's the best business platform out there? It's like LinkedIn. And it's like almost a day late, you know, dollar short. It's like gaining now, but man, it, it is a it is a grinding slog of continuously sort of nurturing this thing over and yeah, over, and it's right? Really, um, I don't know how you found it for me. It's just like so I think a lot of
1: people view any social media platform or even just marketing in general as how do I get my product in front of more people? How do I get, like, how do I become a thought leader? How do I, how do I do these things? What's, what's the algorithm going to say to this? Like it's, it's you against the world on LinkedIn. And the way I think about it is like, my goal yeah. at no point is to be a thought leader. My goal at no point is to figure out how the LinkedIn algorithm works. My goal at no, like my goal is build relationships with people in the data world that I, that engage that I can engage in conversation with either through the posts. So like a lot of stuff I post about is things that I I have conversations that I found really interesting. Something pops into my head. I'm like, oh, like I want to share something from here to a wider audience, add value to the world. And then it's like the comments, like a lot of people view LinkedIn as an algorithm or a way of like selling a thing. But you have to think about it as like, there's thousands and millions of people behind the computers on the other side. And like, that's what you're trying to do here. Like you're, what you're trying to do is just add value to those people. And it's, even, it's a, it's a balance. I, I think what you, what you like to your point of there, there's a bunch of work that goes in to build an audience or it's it like I think about it more, like I use the word audience a lot, but it's like, it's a community. It's, it's a bunch of people that actually see me post and they're like, I actually understand how Ethan thinks because he posts all the time. And they feel like they know me uh, because of my posts plus our, Comment conversations plus I meet with a lot of people off LinkedIn, but it's like you do all like it's a it doesn't end. So like even today, like this this week, yeah, I'm 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 not posting about portable. I'm just posting about stuff that I find would is I, I'm I'm both engaged with. Like I'm I'm interested to hear other people's perspective, and I I like to talk about it. I'm learning new things because if you think about any social media platform and any community in general. If you go into the community trying to take from everyone, literally going in being like, I want you to pay me, I want you to pay me, I want you to pay me. No one's going to engage with you. No one wants you to be there. So you have to think about it as a constant balance. And early on, you deserve nothing, like, like you've, you've given no value to the community. Don't go in and try and take from the community. Like, you have to give a lot uh, before you can ever ask anyone for a favor. And they don't have to say yes. So it's one of those things to me where it's a constant, like I I battle with myself over how much, like uh, there are benefits of me mentioning Portable in post or talking about like a new feature or getting feedback from the ecosystem on something we're thinking about building. But I always have to balance that with, if I talk about, if I just posted about Portable's product for a month, most people would hate me. Like most people on LinkedIn in the community would be like, cool, like Ethan's in sales mode now. Like, not not interested like I, I want to hear his perspectives on things not in, so you have to balance con early on don't try and sell it all like do not like once you get to a big enough you can and it's not even sell like but like don't try and ask for anything because no you don't you haven't built any goodwill um over time it's still a delicate yeah. balance so there's a lot of there, there and it's it's interesting just because you see it with a lot of in the influencing world in general where it's like you get to a certain threshold, and then you just like run ads nonstop for other people. All the people that followed you up until then, like yes, you can monetize it, but like you're probably not going to grow your audience if that's the approach. So like there's it's always a back and forth of continue adding value and find a way of having to actually impact your your business in a positive way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think largely the approach that I've trying to tried to figure out and take is. I agree with you. It's like, what value are you adding? Like, I've been in this business for 20 plus years. I've been in a number of, you know, very large companies. I've seen a lot of good things. I've seen a lot of bad things. I've I've formulated points of views over all that, that 20 years of experience. How can I share that back out there? How can I talk about it? How can I put that in the hands of others so either they're not making the same mistake or I can say like, hey, this was a total shit show when I did this before, poke fun at myself, all those sorts of things. But then like, I also agree with you, I'm also trying to start a business and and a lot of my points of view are the reason we started this business, right? Is we have a point of view of how teams, specifically product engineering teams should deliver customer facing analytics. And that comes from, you know, problems that we've had to solve in previous lives and and pain that we've endured. And so you kind of like, you have to have this mix. If you're in sales mode, like you said, you're going to turn everybody off. Uh, If you don't sell at all, well, you're never going to, you're pro- you're not, you're, you're not using your audience and you're, they're not going to go anywhere. And it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing coming from, you know, a peer, more peer engineering background and, and never dealing with any of that stuff before to like, fuck, we got to go hack this and figure it out. You know, we don't, we don't know. We just got to go figure it out and, and do the best yeah. we can. To
1: me, that's like, it's whether it's LinkedIn or we also do some stuff when it comes to like SEO, like just writing content, and then we have like happy hours and conferences. Most of the happy hours and conferences are from LinkedIn. Like if it wasn't for my LinkedIn following, we wouldn't have a hundred people showing up at a bar once a month in New York. Like we wouldn't have conference spe- attendees or speakers, but it's one of those things of, it's, it's a balance for all of them. It's like, are you giving to the community or are you trying to take from the community? And I, and I think whatever channel you're going into from a marketing perspective, it's got to be some combination. It's got to be a combination of creating value. Totally.
0: Have you ever have you ever sat down, um, if you've written enough, I'm sure this has happened, like you sit down, you put together this LinkedIn post, which, okay, we'll say it's not about portable, but it's about something. And you're like, oh my God, I love this post. Like you love it yourself personally. You're like, oh my God, I really like this post. I think it's going to resonate. You put it out there, it just falls completely flat. Oh, yeah. it,
1: it, it's the the, the <laughs> thing about, it's people on the other side. It's not, you're, you're not trying to optimize for an algorithm. It's like, you're trying to yeah. engage, like you want people to comment. You want it to like resonate with them. I've seen both. I've yeah. seen it as like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And then it flops. Some of my best posts, I'm looking at them being like, I wrote that in like 15 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes. And I posted just because I felt like I needed to something. Same. And I'm like, I got a million impressions on yeah. this thing. Like, and I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm like, how do I recreate this? And I'm like, it's, it's, it doesn't, it, there's like patterns and trends of how do you do things in a way that are engaging, but you need to think about it not as What words did I use? You have to think about it as there's 5,000 people on the other side of that post that all clicked like, and a bunch of people that reshared it. It's like, what is going through their head about this post that I tapped into? Like there's some, there's, there's a human being who like this truly resonated with, like ignore the the text, ignore the thing I wrote. Like what is the pain point or the thing that got them really excited that I tapped into that really matters on all this stuff? if you just think about, oh, that I, this is a good, this is well-written or this is beautiful, like, doesn't matter. It's, what are the things going through people's heads that you can really engage with? Because like, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had one that I, I remember very clearly is it was, I was I was pissed off about something, a like customer's JSON or something else like that. And I kind of just riffed on it. It only took me a few minutes to write. I put it out there and it just blew I, Like, for yeah. me, it blew up, uh, which, you know, is, is nothing comparable to sort of like, you know, your million impressions. But for me, it had blown up. I was like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't even think about this. I was just pissed I, off threw it out there. And
1: clearly everybody else is pissed trend, off The one trend though, that I have seen, the best posts, <laughs> the ones that are most engaged, that people actually engage with, happen when I'm pissed off. Best, like, like what it, when it it's, it's one of those things of like, if you're sitting there being like, okay, I have to write a post today and I really don't have any, like you either have to be really passionate about something or really pissed off. Like, so what I've started realizing is if I can, if I like end up in a mode where I'm like, just pissed off or like really excited about things, I just need to sit down and write like five posts for the week. And then they'll do much better than me sitting down every day in like whatever state of like I just had breakfast and like let me try and think of the next thing. So like I have I have realized something similar where like when you get really passionate yourself about something because you're pissed off, or because you're excited, or because something doesn't make any sense to you, or it's like, why did why is the why is the world like this? It tends to resonate because it's like it's it's those emotions that actually engage people. It's not writing. And etiquette and
0: that type of stuff. Yep. It's, it's, definitely not being, uh, yep. clever. <laughs> I thought it was. And like you know, I was like, it was funny. I'll, I'll actually give you the example. I'd had a, had a, uh, a guest on the podcast and, and he had weave this beautiful analogy of, of customer, of, of, uh, customer support folks and the communications they have. He did like, it's just the analogy just worked really well of like, you know, how it's a, a give and a take, how it's a dance between the customer support agent and the person on the other side. I just, yeah. I loved it. I thought it was a great analogy. So I was all excited about it and, and wrote about it and put it out there. And I was like, fuck, that got like 50 impressions. Holy Dude. shit. Wow. Like that just, okay, yep. that didn't work. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. I was I was excited, but nope, nobody else is about uh, the yep. tango. So I'll just leave it at that. It was great. though. Really? Anyways, <laughs> Ethan, I, this has been great. Any, any last things you want uh, listeners to know?
1: Follow me on LinkedIn if you want to hear my perspectives and and if you comment, let me like I love to have conversations. That's why I'm there. If you want to catch up, let me know. And if you're ever looking for a random connector, something to pull data into your data warehouse, that reach out. Um or check out Portable. Yeah. If you're ever in New York, I'm around. Um so always happy to catch up in person as well.
0: Amazing. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate your perspective and your time. Uh, We both have companies to run, so we better get back to it. Totally. And uh, look forward to getting those out for all the listeners. Thanks so much and uh, have yourself a, a great
1: weekend. Sounds great. You as well.